We're doing a series here on the Holy Spirit, which loops us into talking about the Trinity, and it doesn't get any deeper than this. So once again, we're going to turn this into a classroom, and I want you to put on your thinking caps. I can promise you that if we'll wrestle with this, and see, we shouldn't be afraid of of wrestling with stuff, you know, grasping it, like, what does that mean? And and digging deeper into stuff. This idea that you just want to give people a little cliche to get them happy and send them off. No, 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 no. We want to grow. We want to deal with this stuff. But I can promise you that it will will pay off. But it's not the easiest stuff in the world to get. This is about as thick as it gets. Uh, And so uh, really put on your thinking cap. I'm entitling this Participating in the Divine Nature. We're using Luke chapter 1, verses 39 and 40 as a springboard for this series on the Holy Spirit. I'm not really preaching from this text. I'm preaching off of this text. And the difference is this. I'm using this as, a, as, a, as an occasion to step back and now do a more comprehensive study. So the verse that we're springboarding off of is Luke chapter 1, verses 39 and 40, where it says that, At that time Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby that we've already read is John the Baptist, and he's already filled with the Spirit. The baby, in responding to the presence of Jesus, leaped in the womb. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you tend to leap when Jesus gets around. Uh, The baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth then was filled with the Holy Spirit. And what we're seeing here is that here at the, in, the, in the inauguration of this kingdom revolution, there are things that are taking place that are kind of uh, telling us, they're foreshadowing uh, things that will characterize this revolution. And this verse is telling us that this revolution will be characterized by people being filled with the Spirit and leaping in the presence of Jesus. It will be a spirit revolution, so we're talking about the Holy Spirit. Another passage I want to read before we pray is 2 Peter chapter 1. Uh, where Peter says he has given us through these things his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become participants of the divine nature. I love that phrase, participants of the divine nature. And that's what we're going to be speaking on here this morning. What does that mean and how do we do it? I want to pray for the message. Could I get some people around the auditorium that will keep me covered in prayer as I am preaching this? Wonderful. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we're talking about you, preaching about you, exploring some deep things about you. The word says that that you are the one that leads us into the deep things of God. Deep calls unto deep. And so, Holy Spirit, we're asking you to take us deeper. Take us deeper. Talking about you, Holy Spirit, is useless if you're not in the talking about you. So come, Holy Spirit. As Greg prayed earlier, come, Holy Spirit. Fill us, Holy Spirit. Baptize us, Holy Spirit. Move us, Holy Spirit. Ignite us, Holy Spirit. Revive us, Holy Spirit. Stir us up, Holy Spirit. Get us out of our lethargy, Holy Spirit. Get us out of our addiction to churchianity, Holy Spirit. Uh, Make Jesus come alive to us, Holy Spirit. Enliven our minds. Open our eyes. Increase our understanding. Intensify our commitment, Holy Spirit. All of that is your doing. We don't try to manufacture that with our own words or anything. So Holy Spirit, come and have your way in this place right here and right now in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen, amen. Amen. This is going to be a little intense, so hang with me here. Last week, we got pretty deep. This week, we're going to get deeper. Uh, By way of review, what we saw last week was that 
the way God does God, uh, uh, the way God does God involves us, and the way we do us involves God. That is, that's what salvation is all about. The way God relates to us, and the way God has us relate to him, uh, involves the eternal way that God is God. He's Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. As we saw last week, uh, God, the, God the Father comes to us. Every movement of God to us has this form to it. It comes from the transcendent Father, goes through the incarnate Son, is consummated in the imminent Spirit. From the Father, through the Son, grabs us in the Holy Spirit, and then being grabbed by the Holy Spirit, he takes us back to himself through Jesus Christ. The Trinity is revealed in the way God relates to us and in the way God has us relate to him. And remember that all movements towards God are initiated by the Holy Spirit, not ourselves. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18, through him, referring to Christ, we both, that's referring to all ethnicities, uh, Jews and Gentiles, which encompass in the Jewish world all ethnicities, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Through him, through Christ, all people have access to the Father by one Spirit. That's how we go to God. If you're Jewish, the way you go to God is to the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit. If you're white, the way you're going to go to God is, is through the Son, by the Holy Spirit, to the Father. To the Father, through the Son, by the Holy Spirit. If you're black, you're going to go to the Father, through the Son, by the Holy Spirit. If you're Asian, guess what? You're going to go to the Father, through the Son, by the Holy Spirit. If you're Latino, if you're Native American, you're going to go to the Father, through the Son, by the Holy Spirit. And if you're Irish, you're going to go to the Father, through the Son, by the Holy Spirit. All people go to the Father, through the Son, by the Holy Spirit. Amen? And the Spirit brings us together in that. There's one Spirit who brings us all. God comes to us from the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit. We go to God by the Holy Spirit through the Son to the Father. And what we saw last week is that that movement, that triune movement, that threefold movement, the movement of the Trinity, is the movement of God's own eternal being. We're on the inside of God. The way that God does God involves us, and this is what it means when it says we are participants of the divine nature. If you were a Muslim or if you were Jewish, you believe that God is, is absolutely singular. He's undifferentiated. And if that's what you believe, then you can't believe that God eternally is loving because love is a relationship that involves an I and a thou. So in that worldview, God has to create a world in order to start loving. Which means for a God who is undifferentiated and singular, love is a verb. But see, from a Christian point of view, God is eternally a perfect, unsurpassably loving relationship. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When God creates the world and when God now relates to us, he's not doing something extraneous to himself. He's not primarily doing a verb. He's simply being the noun that he is. Which is why the Bible says in 1 John 4, 6, and, and, or 4, 8, and 4, 16, it says that God is love. It's not just that God loves, but that God is love. Love is for God the noun that he is before it's the verb that he does. And salvation is about us getting caught up in the noun that God is. Now that was shallow stuff. That was last week. Now we're going to go a little deeper. Because I want to ask the question, how... How does, the, the, how does Christ and the Holy Spirit bring us into that relationship? What I want to chew on here is some stuff we rarely talk about. What is all this talk in the Bible about being in Christ and through Christ and in the Spirit and by the Spirit and through the Spirit? This beautiful Trinitarian language, by, through, it has all this movement to it. What does it mean? We usually assume that people know that, but if you ask them, what does it mean when Jesus says he offers up prayers through the Holy Spirit? What does that mean? 
I don't think very many people know. It's a little tough to, to get at, which is why we don't talk about it much. But, but if we get in on this language, it magnifies greatly our appreciation of the beauty of God and the beauty of salvation. So we're going to wrestle with this. We're going to wrestle with this. I want to take this a step deeper. Are you ready? Are you sure? Okay, here we go. I'm going to get at this by talking about what is the oldest model of the Trinity in church history. It goes back to the second century. It's called today the psychological model of the Trinity. All right, we're going to do some theology here. It was a model that was uh, articulated by St. Augustine in the 5th century, but was really perfected by the great Puritan preacher, theologian, Jonathan Edwards in the 18th century. It's called the psychological model of the Trinity. Now note, it's a model of the Trinity. It's a map. It's not the territory. It doesn't exhaust all that needs to be said about the Trinity, but it gives us a very accurate and, I think, profound angle on one aspect of the Trinity. It's based on two facts about human beings and two facts about God. Here's the two facts about human beings. Fact number one, we saw last week that everything exemplifies or manifests the mystery of the Trinity because everything that exists manifests a unity that embraces diversity and a diversity in the midst of unity. Every single thing that exists manifests that. So the mystery of the Trinity is a mystery that pervades all of creation. That is true about the human being. More specifically, it's true about the human psyche, the human self. We are, we are one self, and yet we, we, we encompass an internal diversity. To get at this diversity, just ask a couple of simple questions. How do you see yourself? And do you like what you see? And who is doing the looking, and who's being looked at when you see yourself? How do you feel about yourself? And who's doing the feeling? And who's the one that is felt about? Are you ever internally conflicted? Do you ever have internal conflict within yourself? Do you ever argue with yourself? In fact, do you sometimes disagree with yourself? When you think who's talking and who's listening? And how do you feel about the one who's talking? You see, there's an ancient piece of wisdom here. It's not just modern psychology. But we've understood that the self consists of three distinct components. There is a self, a self, a core to the self. And then there is a self-image, which is uh, the expression of this core self, or at least should be. And then there's a third thing, which is the relationship between the self and the self-image. The self-image talks to you. The self-image you know, argues with you or whatever, and you have, a, you have a relationship to it. You love it, you hate it, or whatever. The self-image that we have, the, the picture of ourselves that we have, and it changes from context to context. But that self-image is not just an idea in our head, as though the real self was the core and the self-image was less real. The self-image is as much real as any other part of you. That self-image talks to you. It, it blesses you. It may curse you. You may love it. You may hate it. It relates to you and you relate to it. It's part of who you are. And so the self consists of, of the self, the self-image, and this relationship too, uh, between the two. That relationship between the two is what is often called the spirit of a person, your innermost spirit. It constitutes your innermost personality. Who you are is defined by the relationship you got going on in your head between the self and the self-image. That is your spirit. 
A person who tends to be upbeat is a person who's got a healthy self-relationship going on. The way they see themselves, they love it, they have congruity with it, there's an absence of conflict, there's peace in their head. They have a triunity that is, that is beautiful, and they, they will therefore, the spirit, which is the relationship between the self and the self-image, their spirit's going to be upbeat, they're going to be life-affirming, there's going to be a joy and peace about them. And that makes them a magnet because everyone's hungry for life. On the other hand, there are people that you're around and, and uh, uh, there's something gloomy about them. A person who has a self-disdaining relationship in their head. When you're around them, you can sense their spirit. There's a downness there. There's a darkness, a cloud. There's, there's something hovering around them. When you relate to a person who's got internal congruity going on in their threefold self, uh, it blesses you. You get caught up into that. You, they're celebrating their existence and you get caught up into that self-celebration. Whereas when you're on a person who's got a self-disdain or self-hatred relationship going on, you get caught up in that as well. And sometimes you're on a person, you sense his gloominess, and it's like getting sucked into a vortex. They just, especially because a person like that's hungry for life, and boom, if you sense any sense of life on you, they're like, you know, trying to, to, to pull you in to give them some life, but it just feels like you're getting caught in a vortex. In either case, for better or for worse, the self consists of a self, a self-image, and the relationship between the self and the self-image, which leads to my second point. To the extent that you are in a loving relationship to others, they're incorporated into your self-relationship, they, which is to say they participate in your spirit, which is your self-relationship. In other words, to the extent that your relationship is intimate, the way that you do you in your innermost being involves them, and the way that they do them in their innermost being involves you. So I said last week, my love for my wife participates in my love for myself and vice versa. The way I do me involves her and the way she does her involves me, which is to say our spirits are joined. Our, our, our internal self-relationships are joined. They don't become identical any more than we become God. And that's a good thing, because if they were identical, there wouldn't be a relationship. We, 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 the relationship presupposes that the two stay distinct, and yet they overlap, they intersect, they're intertwined with one another. My self-relationship, which is my spirit, touches her self-relationship, which is her spirit, and they're intertwined. We're on the inside of one another. Which is to say that in an intimate relationship, your love is not primarily a verb that you do. Rather, it's the noun that you are. When I think of myself and when I relate to myself, Shelly is there. And when she thinks of herself and relates to herself, I am there. Part of my loving myself now involves her and part of her loving herself involves me. And part of my loving her involves loving myself, and part of her loving herself involves loving me. It all gets intertwined, which is why that old cliche is true, that you can't love somebody else unless you love yourself. That really is one of the true cliches that are out there, and there are not many of them, but that's a true one. This works for the better or for worse. If you've got a life-affirming person on the inside of your self-relationship, it blesses you. If you've got a person, however, who's life-negating on the inside of you, it doesn't bless you, it curses you. Uh, there are some people who part of their self-image and therefore their self-relationship involves, let's say, for example, a woman has a self-relationship and part of that involves, uh, under the right conditions, she sees a shaming father reaming a seven-year-old girl out and she's that seven-year-old girl. Well, the way that she does her now involves her father. There's still that relationship there, but it curses her. This is why one of the main jobs of discipleship 
and growing in the Christian life is to become aware of the voices in your head, those aspects of your self-image that pollute your internal relationship because they don't speak the truth about Christ. They lie. They, they, they communicate things that disagree with the worth that is ascribed to you on the cross of Calvary. And the way to grow in the Christian life is to become aware of them, tag them as lies, and shut them up. And then take the ones that are agree with Christ and ascribe worth to you and turn the volume up on those. So the two aspects of ourself is that we're composed of, of a self, self-image, and a relationship, a spirit. And secondly, love is about getting a person on the inside of your self-relationship and you getting on the inside of their self-relationship. Now let's talk about two facts about God. The, see, the psychological model of the Trinity says that that threefoldness that constitutes the human self echoes or mirrors and ideally participates in the threefoldness of God, the Trinity, because we're made in the image of God. Here's two biblical facts that ground this. Number one, Jesus is called the Logos and the image of God throughout the New Testament. The word Logos means expression or it means uh, thought. Uh, it, 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 when God thinks about himself or thinks about anything, it looks like Jesus Christ. And so it says in John 1.1, 1, 1, that in the beginning was the word, and it, which is the word logos. And the word was with God and the word was God. Even before creation, when God thought, the word logos, uh, we get the word logic from it, logic. When God thinks, it looks like Jesus Christ. When God expresses himself, even before the creation, it looks like Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. This is what God looks like. Colossians 1, he is the image, in Greek, ikonos. We get the word icon from it. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says the same thing. All of this tells us that, that uh, uh, God has an image, God has a thought, God has a word, God has an expression, and it's Jesus Christ. Uh, which is why all of our thinking about God from beginning to the middle to the end has got to be centered on the person of Jesus Christ. Here's where God is fully revealed. So mothers and fathers throughout church history have come to this conclusion that in one sense at least, Jesus is to the Father what our self-image is to us. The Father knows himself perfectly and loves himself perfectly and what that looks like is Jesus Christ. When God thinks, it looks like Jesus so Jesus is to the Father what our self-image is to the Father. That's why he's called the image of the Father. Point number two, and this one is not nearly noticed as much. Throughout the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is depicted as the one who is the perfect unity of the Father and the Son. Just as our spirit is the, the unity, uh, the relationship between our self and self-image, the Holy Spirit is the relationship between the Father and his image, who is called the Son. There's a broad biblical pattern behind this. Uh, the Spirit is always spoken of throughout the New Testament as the unifying Spirit. For example, we just read in Ephesians chapter 2 that we all, Jew and Gentile, all ethnicities, we together have access to the Father through the Son. The Holy Spirit brings us together and does that. He, the Bible talks about the, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the one who brings us together. The unity of the Holy Spirit, the one who brings us together. The harmony of the Holy Spirit, the one that, that reconciles us to one another. So the Spirit of God towards us is this unifying factor, which suggests that the Spirit of God in God is this unifying factor. But even more explicit than that, we find that, in fact, the broad biblical pattern in the New Testament is that the Father and the Son relate to one another through the Holy Spirit. So, for example, the Father relates to the Son through the Holy Spirit in Luke chapter 3. 
It says, now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven and said, you are my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. This paradigmatic event really is saying something that's true about the inner, inner being of God. The Father blesses the Son, commissions the Son, loves the Son, but he does it through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings what's true of the Father to the Son. Throughout Jesus' ministry, you find this pattern. What Jesus does, he does by the Father, or at least by the will of the Father. But it also says all the time that what he does, he does by the Holy Spirit. There's not a competition there, because it's the Father doing it through the Son. And so, for example, by the Spirit in the Son. So, for example, in, in the book of Acts, it says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And look at that language there. God, that's referring to the Father, anointed Jesus, the Son, with the Holy Spirit. Now, God was with Jesus, it says, to say God was with Jesus is not to say that the Holy Spirit wasn't with Jesus because the Holy Spirit is God and it's the Father's with Jesus through the Holy Spirit. The point being this, and it can get very convoluted very quickly, can't it? But the point is this, that there is the Father relating to the Son, it, it's, it's mediated by the Holy Spirit. The same is true of the Son's relationship to the Father. So for example, it says in Luke chapter 10, at that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. The Son blesses the Father, but he's doing it in the Holy Spirit. There's this movement, Father to the Son, Son to the Spirit, uh, Son to the, to the Father, and that movement is the Holy Spirit. So also it says in the book of Hebrews, very interesting passage, if the blood and go of goats and bulls with the sprinkling of the ashes of a, I always want to say heifer, but I said that once and I, I haven't lived it down ever since. Uh, heifer, heifer. Well, if it's heifer, why isn't it spelled H-E-F-F-E-R? For crying out loud. <laughs> Whoever invented the English language was an idiot. <laughs> Didn't know how to spell. Okay, the ashes of a heifer sanctifies those who have been defiled so that their flesh is purified. How much more will the, listen to this, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will he purify our conscience from dead works, uh, to worship the living God. What does that mean? Jesus offered himself up through this, the, the, the eternal spirit. See, there, there's this interesting go-between the Father and the Son who's called the Holy Spirit. And for that reason, mothers and fathers throughout the church history have, have, have come to this insight. Our threefold relationship seems to mirror, at least in some respects, God's threefold relationship. And that's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. Just as our spirit is the relationship between ourself and the self-image, so the Holy Spirit is the relationship between the Father and the Son. Now, this is a model. It doesn't capture the distinct personhood of the Spirit, but no model captures every, everything. It still is a true model, a true insight. Now, I want to take this a step further and begin to apply it to our life. And you'll see that this has some interesting implications. Listen to this. In the same way that my love for my wife pulls her Shelley, into the inside of my self-relationship and vice versa. God's love for us pulls us into the inside of his self-relationship, his eternal triune self-celebration. And so in the same way that my wife joins my spirit, 
her spirit, her self-relationship, joins my spirit, my self-relationship. So also, in being pulled into God's self-relationship, we are touching, our spirit is being joined to the spirit of God. We participate in the dance of the Holy Spirit, which is what Peter means when he says we're partakers of the divine nature. Uh, we, we, we can get at this by talking about what it means to be in Christ and what it means to go through the Spirit. Let's focus on in Christ. The Bible depicts it this way. We are made participants in the divine nature by being placed into Christ. That's very literal. There's a new reality that we're in. It's called Christ. We're in Christ. And being placed in Christ, we're made partakers of the Father's love for Christ and Christ's love for the Father, which is to say we're made partakers of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father. When we're in Christ, we're loved by the Father in the process of his loving the Son. When we're in the Son, he loves the Son, and therefore he loves us in the Son. And now we begin to love the Father as we yield to the Holy Spirit. We love the, the Father with the same love the Son has for the Father. We're now participating in the dance. Over and over again in the Bible, you, you hear this phrase, in Christ. It's beautiful. To be, we're, we're placed in Christ. For example, in Ephesians chapter 1, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, everybody say it, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. He destined us for, uh, uh, us for adoption as children according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us Look at that. In Christ, in Christ, through Jesus Christ, in the Beloved. We're incorporated into him. We're placed in the Beloved. We're, we're made holy and blameless in the Beloved. We're loved in the Beloved. We're made children in the Beloved. In fact, the passage says that God had destined us for the adoption of children in, as children in the Beloved. Which means this, that from before the foundation of the world, even while God is just dancing as Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, he was dreaming about us. He was dreaming about having a bride who would be a participant in this dance of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. From the foundation of the world, he's envisioned a people, a bride, who would be in Christ and blessed in Christ and receive the love that the Father has for Christ and participate in Christ's love for the Father, which is to say, who would be dancing in the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean, the passage doesn't mean that God individually picked who would be in Christ and who wouldn't be in Christ. The passage doesn't say that. God wants everyone to be in Christ. But what it means is that if you will yield to the Holy Spirit wooing at you and, and pulling you, and if you allow yourself to be incorporated into Christ by surrendering your life to Christ, now everything that's true about Christ by nature becomes yours by grace. And so the love that the Father has for the Son, the blessing of the Father towards the Son, all that the Father has towards the Son is now applied to you because you're in the Son. And all the Son's relationship with the Father and all of that is now coming through you as you participate in the Son's love for the Father. And all that is to say you are participating in the Holy Spirit who is the love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father. It's not a secondary love that God has for you, not a derivative kind of love, not a shadowy love. The same love by which God is God is directed towards you. You participate in the noun that God is, not a secondary verb that God does. Whew, I love it. This is what it means when it says, okay, hang with me because it's going to get better and better. This is what it means when it says we participate in the divine nature, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. You're participating in the noun that God is. This is how God makes us, this outrageous lover, this is how God gets us on the inside of him and gets him on the inside of us. 
This is how he makes us the beloved. This is how he makes us holy. This is how he makes us blameless. This is how he makes us children. This is how he makes us redeemed. This is how God dances with us and how God dances in us. And this is how we dance with God and how we dance in God. We're put in the beloved and thereby participate in the Holy Spirit. We get caught up in the way that God does God. The way he does it eternally. The way he does it perfectly. We get caught up in the Spirit of God. We become participants of the divine nature. And salvation could not possibly be more beautiful than that. There is no way it could be better. Dream any dream you want, theologize however you want. Salvation couldn't be better than, than it actually is. Because not only does God give us himself, he incorporates us into himself. We don't become God, the pantheists are wrong. It's more beautiful than that. If we became God, the relationship would be dissolved. No, we stay humans, just like my wife stays my wife and I stay the husband, but our spirits join and we dance with each other. We're on the inside of each other. The intimacy that constitutes God throughout eternity is now shared with us and we participate uh, in that and it's beautiful. It could not be more beautiful than it is. Anyone who preaches the gospel to you that, that, that doesn't sound too good to be true is, is, is shortchanging you. Because <laughs> it's beautiful. It's altogether beautiful. I was in California a couple weeks ago. I got time for this. I got 12. Okay. I, I, I was in California a couple weeks ago at Pepperdine University doing some talks. And um, uh, uh, I was out in the mountains of California, and the sun was setting, and it was just this beautiful red. And, I, and it cast this beautiful red glow over the mountains. And I was out looking at this, and I was just overwhelmed. I was looking at the beauty of this, the, like, like surrealistic glowing red mountain top. Oh, it was gorgeous. I was looking at it. I was like, I felt like it was so beautiful if I could be frozen right there and, and in all eternity, and, and I, I wouldn't mind. It's like, this is gorgeous. This is beautiful. And then it occurred to me that that beauty, as wonderful as it is, is a, is a mere fraction, a shadowy, imperfect little shadow of, 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 of the beauty of God, the one who is the source of all beauty and the one who is beauty in and of himself. And that magnify this 10 trillion, trillion times and we begin to understand the beauty of God. And then I begin to think, and I will, I am. God's eternal destiny for me is that I not only will behold that beauty face to face, I'm on the inside of that beauty. <laughs> I, I'm going to be dancing with that beauty, participating in that beauty. I'm part of that beauty. I can taste the beauty. The beauty's all around me. It's this mind-boggling, gorgeous, that's what salvation is. When people make it into some little shallow legal transaction or some kind of thing we buy for fire insurance, it just ruins it. It's glorious. We participate in the divine nature. Let's take it a step further. This is who you were created to be. This is who you really are if you'll just yield to this. You were made to be a participant in the divine nature, made to dance with the triune God. This has been God's plan all along. This wasn't a makeshift ad hoc rescue mission contingency thing. No, this has been the plan all along. Now that Jesus had to die because of our rebellion, that was an ad hoc thing. Uh, but the plan to have some way, somehow God was going to get us into Christ and participating in the Spirit and dancing with the triune God, that was always God's plan. It's why you were created. It's who you really are if you've surrendered yourself to this. In Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's what the Bible says. We participate in the Trinity's eternal love from which nothing can separate us. We participate in the direct communication of the Trinity 
We have access to the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit. We participate in the Trinity's friendship because we're put in God's eternal friend, Jesus Christ. We participate in the Trinity's righteousness because in Christ there's no condemnation and we're made holy and blameless in the Beloved. We participate in the Trinity's fullness because the Bible says that in Christ we're filled with the fullness of God. We participate in the Trinity's blessedness because the Bible says that in Christ we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. We participate in the Trinity's wisdom and understanding because in Christ the Bible Bible says he lavishes on us his wisdom and understanding. We participate in the Trinity's joy and peace because the Bible tells us that in Christ, he, God gives us his own joy and his own peace, the peace that passes all understanding. We participate in the Trinity's fearlessness because God has not given to us the spirit of fear, uh-uh, but the power of love and of self-control. And we participate in the Trinity's mission to the world because in Christ, God is not afraid to call us his co-workers in building the kingdom of God. Friends, this is who you truly are. You are in Christ, caught up in the dance of the Spirit. And all that is God's by nature, he has given to you by grace, praise God. And to the extent that you know this, you are a free person. To the extent that you believe this, you are made whole. To the extent that you experience this, your life becomes joyful. To the extent that you walk in this, Satan's got no hold on you. To the extent that you get this, you are filled with the peace that passes all understanding. And the goal of Christian discipleship is to get our brains to agree with that, to line up with that, to see ourselves as we're defined in Christ and in participating in the way God does God, in God's self-relationship. <laughs> Praise God. Okay, look, at, I'm going to start to close by saying this. Just, I didn't want to get your hopes up. Okay, just keep the thinking caps on a little bit longer. If this is the story you live in, who you are is defined in Christ and through the Spirit and you're dancing with God. If, if that becomes your self-image, your self-identity, if that's what you relate to in, in your self-relationship in your head, then all other sources of, of worth and esteem uh, fall by the wayside. They, they're, they're just exposed as petty. It's okay to feel good about how you look and okay about what you do and okay about what you acquire and okay about what you achieve. Feel good about that. But if you know who you are in Christ, it never constitutes your identity. It's a verb that you do. It's never the noun that you are. The noun that you are, if you know what you're talking about, the noun that you are is participating in the noun that God is. Uh, and so all other sources of self-esteem, if you've got this eternal dance of the triune God going on, being the best singer in the world, it's nice, but, but it would never constitute your identity. You'd never suck worth off of it, which means that if it leaves you, you're okay with that. Well, feel good about your looks, but they're going to leave you. Feel good about your athletic skills, but it's going to leave you. Feel good about your intellectual abilities, but it's going to leave you. Feel good about everything in life. Wonderful. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. But don't let it constitute your identity. And if you know who you are in Christ, there's no temptation to let it constitute your identity. It's a verb that you do that expresses the noun that you are, but it doesn't constitute the noun that you are. The only thing that constitutes the noun that you are is that you participate in the noun that God is. That came out just right. I didn't say it in any of the services. <laughs> Secondly, okay, gosh, we're just getting warmed up. I feel, pray for this person who's doing the signing. Because <laughs> when I get intense like this, I just got so much I want to say. Uh, but I want to honor the children's ministry, you know, and so I'm trying to get this in. Uh, but um, yes, good luck. God, Godspeed to you. <laughs> Literally, Godspeed to you. Okay. When this is, get, get this point, when this is your self-image, you, that you're in Christ participating in the triune dance, 
then your love for yourself is part of your love for God and vice versa. It's part of one process. And in this way also you mirror the triune God. Look it. God loves himself and now he loves you in the process of loving himself because you're on the inside of his self-love. So also, when we align our triune self with God, our love for God and our love for ourselves are not two separate things. Rather, we love God in the process of loving ourselves and we love ourselves in the process of loving God because we see ourselves as we are in God just as God sees himself as he's in Christ. You can think of it this way. I, 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 I can love the artist in the process of loving the work. There's no competition there. And I love his work, I, I love the work of the artist in loving the artist. It's one in the same movement. And now I find out in Scripture that I am the work of the artist. So I love the work of the artist and I love the artist. And it's one in the same movement. The artwork of God is this. He took a desperate sinner and found a way of getting me to participate eternally in the ecstatic dance of the triune God. That's artwork. And I love the artist and I love the artwork. I celebrate who I am in the process of celebrating who God is and vice versa. There's no competition here, which means we don't need to go to that I'm a maggot theology. Uh, you know, like, oh, people feel like I, I, they got to make themselves, I'm altogether worthless, altogether bad, all the, not one good thing in me, not one good thing. And that's your way of glorifying God. Now, I submit to you, that's arrogant because it presupposes that you could possibly compete with God. Like, God is going to be diminished by anything that you do. Now, you know what? He's, he's infinitely greater than that. You, you're actually giving yourself too much credit by thinking that you've got to beat yourself to be a worm uh, in order to glorify him. But the more fundamental point is this. You'd never compliment the artist by insulting his work, all right? Uh, it doesn't work that way. Yes, we're wretched sinners, got that. But I turn from that, and now I'm embracing who I am in the artist's hands, and he's doing something wonderful. He's making me a dancer. He's teaching me how to dance. I'm there swimming with the triune God, and I'll be doing it throughout eternity. And I love me doing that. I love the God who got me to do that. And so loving myself and loving God are one and the same movement. And in doing that, I'm just replicating what God's doing. And thirdly, most difficultly, most challengingly, most complexly, but also most beautifully, when this is your self-image, when you see yourself as you really are dancing with the triune God, your self-love mirrors and participates in God's self-love. For both are centered in the person of Jesus Christ. God sees himself and loves himself in Christ, and I see myself and love myself in Christ. And the same spirit that, that, that relates the Father to the Son and the Son to the Father is the spirit that's now working in my spirit to relate me as I am in Christ. And to have that form my self-identity. Let me put it this way. As the Father loves the Son through the Spirit, I love the Son through the Spirit. As, as the Father defines himself in Christ, I define myself in Christ. As the Father loves me in the process of loving himself in the Son, I love the Father in the process of loving me in the Son. My, tri my, my triune self-relationship mirrors and participates in God's triune self-relationship for myself is rooted in Christ just as God's is. Let me put it like this. As God loves me in loving himself in Christ through the Spirit, I love God in loving myself in Christ through the Spirit. This is why it's so important to believe that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully human. He's, this is the most profound thing in the Bible. It is just, this is right here, right here. Jesus is fully God and fully human. He reveals the truth about God and he reveals the truth about humans because he is fully God and fully human. 
And the very same one who reveals the true God reveals the true human because the true human is who the true human is because of who the true God is. He embodies them both. And so as I love, that's why the Bible calls him the truth. He uncovers the truth about God and the truth about, about humans. And so in the process of knowing who I am in Christ, as the Spirit brings me to Christ, uh, I, I love God and I love myself as the one who's loved by God. I know the true God in the process of knowing me as the one who's truly loved by God in Christ through the power of the Spirit. And all this in Christ and through the Spirit language, which is otherwise so opaque, all of it in the end re it reveals this. It reveals how profoundly, deeply we're on the inside of God and how profound and deeply God wants to be on the inside of us. He participates in our nature that we might participate in his nature. He participates in our self-understanding that we might eternally participate in his self-relationship. We're immersed in the spirit, which is to say we're immersed in the eternal way that God does God. And the goal of life is to have that immersion in his spirit define our innermost spirit. And now, now we manifest at least one central dimension of what it is to be made in the image of God. So I close with this question or these questions. How really do you see yourself? Do you see yourself in the beloved? Do you really see yourself? Is that truth greater than the voice of your hollering father reaming you out at the age of seven for something you didn't do? I mean, I, I, is that the story you live in? Do, do you really see yourself participating in the divine nature? Do you, do you see your life as a dance? A dance in your head and a dance in God, and it's a dance in your head that reflects the dance that is in God. Do you see yourself immersed in the Spirit? Ask yourself this. Does your spirit, your spirit, the way you do you, does that reflect the Spirit of God, the way God does God? Does the way you relate to yourself reflect the love by which God relates to himself? This is all the Spirit's job. The Spirit's job is to always be drawing us. He's revealing the love of the Father for the Son, the Son for the Father, by drawing us into the love of the Father for the Son and the love of the Son for the Father. He draws us in, which means he draws us to get us, to get God on the inside of us and us on the inside of God. He's the go-between there. I close with this verse. This verse says it all, though I don't have time to unpack it. But let me leave it with you. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Now the Lord is the Spirit. He's also the Father and the Son, but he certainly is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Amen. You get what I've been talking about here the last 40 minutes, and you will be the freest person on the planet because nothing has got a hold on you. This is freedom. And all of us, Spirit unites us all together, doesn't he? With unveiled faces, talking about how our minds have been cleared. Seeing the glory of the Lord. The Spirit draws us to see Jesus. As though reflected in a mirror. Reflected in our minds. We're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For all this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Yield to the Spirit. Dance with the Spirit. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. Fix your eyes and your mind upon, on, uh, upon who you are in Christ. Let that be the story you live in. Let it be the story when you're in a good mood. Let it be the story when you're in a bad mood. Let it be the story when life is going great. And let it be the story when life is just going down the toilet. It doesn't matter because what's going on around you doesn't affect the story. The story, 
The story's about the noun that God is, and that doesn't change. And God, by his, his love and sovereign decree, has made you a participant in the noun that he is, a dancer in the perfect love of the triune God. The beauty and the love and the life that will go on forever and ever. But it can start now. The one thing that blocks it is the lies in our head. Collapse them and dance with the triune God. As we're dismissed, I'm going to say a little prayer. But uh, the, the prayer team's up here. If you would like to have any need prayed for uh, in your life, feel free to come forward, spend some time in prayer with these folks. If you're here this morning and you not only don't have a clue as to what I'm talking about, but you've never surrendered your life to Christ. Or maybe you understand what I'm talking about, but you haven't surrendered your life to Christ. Don't leave in that condition. Start the dance. Get involved in the stream. Step into it. Surrender your life. Up here to my right, your left, there's a person who would love to explain what that's about and give you some free stuff. And so I encourage you to take a minute or two out and come up here and, and get that. Holy Spirit, thank you. As we leave this place, keep on flowing into us. Lord, keep on applying this to our life. Uh, teach us how to dance. Teach us how to dance in the self that you've made us. And to let God be on the inside of that dance, teach us how to dance in God. Lord, I pray that we would go out increasingly and living life as a celebration of, of, of who we are because of who you are. And Lord, may the world see that dance and be pulled into that dance. And may the kingdom of God expand as we go out and live our lives in celebration of you. We give you the praise and the thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said one last time. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Go out and build the kingdom.